0: Both of these conclusions have a Levite, you'll notice, as one of their main characters. Bethlehem of Judah plays a main role in both of them. Both passages mention Shiloh. Both passages mention acts of war where they destroy entire cities, devoting them to destruction. Both passages mention exactly 600 men of war. And most importantly, tying them together, is we get this repeated refrain that's only used at the conclusion of the book here. That everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's used four times. The first one and the last one is a little bit longer with the insertion of there was no king. And so you get something of a sandwich effect with two of the refrains in the first account and two of the refrains in the second account. And so if last week's message focused on the religious anarchy, what I called the religious anarchy in Israel, their idolatry, So this week, we get a similar message, but now focused on their civil anarchy, their societal chaos and evil. So the message that God is speaking to us in this passage, I believe, is this, that without God's king, the Israelites do right in their own sight, resulting in civil anarchy, social chaos and evil. Whereas the first conclusion, as one commentator says... Uh, It focused on Israel's idolatry. The second conclusion focuses on the impact of Israel's idolatry. He says the idolatry uh, does not consist simply in worshiping other gods, but it takes the form of living like people who worship other gods, and we see then that disastrous result here. And so, what we'll do is we'll work through the account. There are three scenes. Matt read the first one for us, so we won't reread that. But then we'll, after working through the three scenes, we'll wrap up with some concluding reflections. And so in the first scene here with the Levite and his concubine, first of all, the fact that the Levite has a concubine should tip something off to us. That's a little ominous. A concubine would have been, have, would have been considered illegally a, a, a wife, but it was more like a legal sex slave. It was an additional wife, and the text actually refers to the Levite as her master. And so this Levite, who among all the peoples, all the tribes of Israel, they were supposed to be set apart, the Levite is behaving like the surrounding nations and taking a concubine to himself. So we know things are not starting off terribly well. And it says that she is unfaithful in the ESV, and so she runs away. Now, this idea of unfaithful in the ESV, it would convey this idea that she was sexually unfaithful. But likely a better reading, which is represented by a lot of other translations, is that she, quote, found him to be repugnant. Um, That she ran away because her situation, likely than the case, is that it wasn't very good. It would indicate that the Levite was probably not a great husband. I mean, consider the fact that he waited four months before going to retrieve her. Obviously, he didn't really care that much about her. And then, of course, we have the horrendous events that occur in Gibeah itself. It's ironic, of course, that the Levite doesn't want to stay with foreigners. Do you notice that? He's like, we can't stay with foreigners, those outside the people. Of course, we start to expect that maybe they would have received better treatment had they done so. Gibeah here, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you'll notice that Gibeah here is portrayed almost exactly like the town of Sodom. Which was destroyed by God. You remember when Lot was living, and Lot fled, and his wife fled, um, and, and God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. the The parallels to Genesis 19 are just blatant. Both accounts, you have visitors arriving to the town by night. In the case of Genesis, it's angels. But the visitors are not shown hospitality. No one offers them a place to stay, and so they end up sleeping in the town square, which would have been particularly scandalous at that time in a culture that doesn't have hotels like we do today. Showing hospitality, taking someone in, was expected in that culture and highly valued. So it's scandalous that no one does that. Eventually, someone does come late at night and offer them to stay in their house. In Genesis, that's Lot who offers them in. Uh, here it's this man. But notably, both of these individuals who do show hospitality are sojourners in the town. Neither of them are originally from there. Remember, Lot is sojourning in Sodom. And so this man is from Ephraim in verse 16. And so even the hospitality they do receive is not reflective of the town itself. The men of the city in both in both accounts surround the house and beat on the door and they demand to be given the male guests so they can have their way with them sexually. The owners of the house, in both cases, offer women from the house instead as substitutes. So Lot offers his two daughters, and the man here uh, in Judges 19 offers his daughter and the Levite's concubine. The only difference, really, is is that in the case of uh, Sodom, God blinds the men and they don't actually carry out their violence. And with Gibeah, uh, they actually do end up abusing the woman until she dies. And so Israel, if anything, is worse than Sodom. And just imagine being this woman. I want us to just reflect on the fact that this was a real woman who lived and went through these things. Her situation is absolutely heartbreaking. That she's essentially this sex slave to the Levite for her adult life. He's her master, so to say. She runs away, likely due to mistreatment by him. Her father seems unconcerned. In fact, in verse 3, it says that he greets the Levite with joy. Like he's excited to see this uh, terrible son-in-law, essentially. Maybe he's glad that he came to take his daughter back. She eventually returns with the Levite, it says, but nothing in the text says that she did this willingly or that he spoke to her and actually persuaded her and she agreed to it. The action entirely shifts to her husband and the father, who it seems likely just made the decision for her, treating her like property. In Gibeah, the Levite physically, her Levite, her husband, so to say, physically forces her out to give her to the men of the city so that they can rape her. Apparently, the Levite simply goes to bed after that point while this is happening outside. It says that he awakes eventually, so he slept while this is happening. She's abused all night. She eventually dies from it. In the morning, when she's dead at the doorstep, the Levite is just so callous, like, hey, let's get going. And of course, she's unresponsive. And then he dismembers her body and sends it across the tribes of Israel. And we don't even know her name. It's utterly heartbreaking. And elsewhere in this account, as we'll read, women across this account are mistreated. The, the, the man who showed the Levite hospitality, he wants to offer up his virgin daughter. So he's like, don't do this horrible thing, men of Gibeah, here, let me do a horrible thing and offer up my daughter. Later the women in Jabesh Gilead have their, fam- their families get killed. And and, and the women are kidnapped and forced into marriage, as we'll see. And then the women at Shiloh are also kidnapped and forced into marriage. And notice how this contrasts with how throughout the the whole book of Judges, women have served as some of the most heroic characters. Aksa, Caleb's daughter, in chapter 1, boldly takes action to secure a good inheritance for herself and her family. Or Deborah steps up to secure deliverance for Israel, even when Barak is a deadbeat judge. In chapter five, or chapter four and five, Jael uh, drives a tent peg through Sisera's head, and she achieves the victory, crushing the head of Israel's enemy. And likewise, it's this unnamed woman who crushes the head of Abimelech when she drops the millstone from the top of the tower in chapter nine. Samson's mother is seen as one who believes the promises of God, even when Manoah. Samson's dad is afraid that God's going to kill them for having seen the angel of the Lord. And so those who in many ways are depicted most positively in the book of Judges are nonetheless treated most horrifically. And so too our history of humanity broadly is loaded with examples of men mistreating and disenfranchising women. They've, women have been viewed and treated as property throughout most of history, even today in certain cultures. They've, they've been, they've been, uh, they haven't been granted the full rights of citizens, citizenship in many cases, not being allowed to vote, for instance. Statistics show that in the United States, so not just the world or history generally, but the United States, that nearly one out of five women in America will be the victim of an attempted or successful rape. And most of those, one out of five is successful. One out of five. One out of three women will experience physical violence from an intimate partner. And we see how abuses in our own culture have been highlighted with movements like Me Too and Church Too. We're well aware of this sort of thing. And we still objectify women today. Maybe not to this extent, hopefully. And I'm sure things like this still do happen in certain places, even in our own country. But um, women abused and even killed. But even on on more modest levels, so to say, we objectify women with the industry, multi-million, maybe maybe billion-dollar industry of pornography, uh, human trafficking, even the way Hollywood, in an acceptable form, portrays women in ways that objectify their bodies, making them sex objects. And what I want you to notice, though, is that this passage, as horrific as it is in accounting these things, It is actually showing us God's concern for the plight of women because he's highlighting it here. That in his sacred scripture, instances like this are included. He wants to record it for us, to highlight it for us, so we cannot miss it. He cares enough to include it in his book. You remember in Matthew 26, Mary comes to Jesus. She's the woman who who comes in and anoints his head with oil and she's wiping his uh, she's wiping his feet with her hair and the tears. And Jesus says, you know, Judas is like, why, why is this woman breaking all this, this oil and wasting this money? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what, what she has done here will be told in memory of her. And so we are telling that memory of her what she has done. It's been recorded in scripture. And her, her memory what she did for Jesus in that moment is honored. And I want to say in a similar way, this Levite, what was done to her is recorded, and God remembers the injustice. God cares about the plight of mistreated women. And so we see Israel here has become like Canaan, whereas Israel was supposed to be a light to the nation, to be a holy nation, and amidst the Canaanites, amidst or amidst the surrounding nations, that is, rather they have now become like those nations. They have essentially become Sodom, This is what we see when everyone is doing right in their own eyes. You'll notice in verse 24, when the the host says, Here, have my virgin daughters. He says, violate them. And in this interesting language, do with them what seems good to you. It's literally good in your eyes. The same word that we see in the refrain, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And so now we get to chapter 20, our second scene. Read this chapter with me now. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to Yahweh at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves to the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone out to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and your counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a, thou- of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Gibeah was a tribe or was a town within Benjamin. And now, therefore, give up the men the worthless fellows of Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the Benjamites? The people of Benjamin. And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up first. The people of Israel rose in the morning And encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before Yahweh until the evening. And they inquired of Yahweh, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And Yahweh said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before Yahweh and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. And the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phineas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, "This shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease?" And Yahweh said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah, as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and to kill some of the people in the highways one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal to Mar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Ma'ar, from Ma'arah, Geba, and there they came against Gibeah, 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And Yahweh defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now, the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as at the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noha as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. Five thousand men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them, and two thousand men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were twenty-five thousand men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But six hundred men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. And so, all the other tribes of Israel at this point gather together to attack Benjamin. And so, Gibeah was from Benjamin, and Benjamin had refused to hand over Gibeah. And so, now it's not just attacking Gibeah, but it's the other tribes all against the tribe of Benjamin. What's interesting here is at other points throughout the book, Israel has not all come together to fight external oppressors, external opposition. But now they turn out in their full numbers, as one man, the passage emphasized. They turn out better here than they have at any other point in the book. Apparently, it's far easier to get Israel to assemble to destroy their own people than to assemble to fight the enemy. Aren't we similar to that? Where it's easy for us sometimes to actually fight our own our, our own fellow Christians, than to, to, to stand against uh, some of the pressures from culture even. And so the Levite gives something of a twisted account. First of all, we have to wonder, what's this Levite even complaining about, right? He's the one who gave the concubine to the men of Gibeah. Like, what did he expect? And he conveniently leaves those details out. And yet he wants to exact revenge on Gibeah, nonetheless, for what he permitted them to do. We see the self-centeredness of his statements. In verse 5, he says, uh, when he's talking to Israel, he says, The leaders of Gibeah, they rose against me, and they surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. All these personal pronouns. All, all, uh, focused on himself. But, but by the time he actually mentions a concubine, it's they violated my concubine. It's all about him. He didn't actually care about his concubine as we saw. This frustration, this, this injustice he feels is, is about himself. He wants revenge because they killed his concubine, his concubine. And Israel is very concerned with purging evil from their midst, as we see in verse 13, which is kind of ironic, given that the rest of the count, they're going to commit quite a bit of evil themselves, not to mention what we've seen elsewhere in the book so far. So too, we often find other people's sin much more offensive than our own. Nonetheless, God uses the other tribes of Israel to enact judgment on Benjamin. God does give them over, and so Uh, one of the points of comparing Gibeah's behavior to Sodom is thus to show that Gibeah is deserving of the same judgment as Sodom. God destroyed Sodom, and so Gibeah is also deserving of judgment. And so Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, has become like one of the Canaanite people, essentially. One of the Canaanite people that God meant for Israel to destroy off the land. We see that as in the opening chapter, that as Judah was the one who came up first, that God said, let Judah go up first. That's what it was like when they were entering into the land. Judah took the charge against the Canaanites. And so now here, Judah also takes the lead again. We're meant to see a parallel. Except this time, now they're attacking Benjamin. Benjamin has effectively become like one of the Canaanites, to be destroyed. God gives them victory. And Benjamin has become one of the Canaanite cities that God defeats before Israel. Now... That said, Israel 's attack nonetheless is disproportional, because they go on, rather than to just attack Gibeah or in the men who came to their defense, they proceed to slaughter even the bystanders. As we'll eventually see, there are no women left. there's no children left. They come close to wiping out the entire tribe. There's just 600 people left at the end. And so as we see in the next chapter this jeopardizes their inheritance. The word inheritance gets used quite a bit here. And inheritance is this word, especially in the Old Testament, that conveys uh, what was promised to Israel, namely that the tribes would live on their promised land, the land that God had promised to them. And of course, this now jeopardizes that because one of those tribes that was to inherit a particular part of the land is almost nearly wiped out. And this mirrors then the beginning of the book. Remember, we have a double introduction and a double conclusion. And at the beginning of the book, the threat against their inheritance, we saw, we saw let, me, let me back up, we, the, the parallel is that at the beginning of the book, we get a focus on, uh, in chapter 1, 1 through 2, 5, we get a focus on how Israel was jeopardizing their inheritance. And then 2, 6 to 3, 6, the second introduction, focuses on the idolatry that was behind it. And so now at the end of the book, chapters 17 and 18 focus on idolatry, And then the last section, 19 through 21, focuses on how their inheritance once again is jeopardized. So there's a mirror effect going on. Do you see? At the beginning of the book, their inheritance was was jeopardized because they failed to drive out the Canaanites and actually take the inheritance. Here, their inheritance, their possession of the land, is in jeopardy because they've nearly eradicated one of the tribes to whom it was given. And so... We learn from this that if the promise of God's inheritance, God giving his people the kingdom, if that was up to us, look what we do with it. We, je- we would jeopardize the promise of God. And so we thank God that it doesn't depend on us. Now we move to chapter 21, the final scene. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel And they sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to Yahweh? For they had taken a great oath, another oath, that is, concerning him who did not come up to Yahweh at Mizpah, that is, to fight Benjamin, saying this, He shall surely be put to death, the one who does not come up with us. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by Yahweh that we will not give any of our daughters to them for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord, to Yahweh at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the, come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a, mit, with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead. But they were not enough for the men of Benjamin. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because Yahweh had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance For the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. Remember, they took the vow. For the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there is a yearly feast of Yahweh at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when the fathers or brothers come and complain to us about this, we will say to them, grant Them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty of violating your oath. That is, and the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man. To his tribe and family, and they went out from there every man to his inheritance. And so the predicament that we see here is that the tribes of Israel had made an oath not to give any of their daughters to, the Benjamin, to Benjamin to marry. And so now the question is who's going to marry these remaining 600 men? The irony, of course, is that in the last chapter, they wept before God because they wanted to destroy Benjamin. The exact same details, the exact same language is mentioned of them weeping. And now they weep before God asking, how in the world has Benjamin been destroyed? I mean, how could that have happened? Like, you're the ones who did it. And we do this very same thing, do we not? We get ourselves into a mess and then we say, why, God, why did you let this happen? But they find a loophole. Jabesh Gilead hadn't shown up to fight, and so they had another oath that they made that they would attack and kill anyone who didn't show up. And so they say, "Okay, great. We have one vow that solves the other vow. Let's go ahead and attack Jabesh Gilead, and then we'll, we won't kill the virgin women there, though, so we can give those women virgin to Benjamin." And again, these are real women who actually lived, who were kidnapped, their families were killed, and they're forced into marriage. So, so the Israelites have compassion for Benjamin who committed this great evil, but apparently they have no compassion for Jabesh Gilead, who in a sense is now going to be killed because of what Benjamin did. We get a reverse conquest here. In the beginning of the book, and even in the earlier in the Pentateuch, the early chapters of the or early books of the Bible, God commands Israel to devote the Canaanites to destruction. There's this technical word that's used that we translate devote to destruction. He says, as you enter into the land, devote the Canaanites, to destruction, absolutely destroy them. This is my judgment on them for their evil. And this word, devote to destruction, is used once in chapter 1, verse 17, to describe Judah actually doing that when they took their land. The only other time the word is used in the entire book is right here in chapter 21, verse 11. But here, it's not used to describe the destruction of a Canaanite city, like God had commanded, Here they're destroying an Israelite city, Jabesh Gilead. Israel, as we saw, by and large, failed to actually devote the Canaanites to destruction as they were commanded to do. But apparently they have no problem devoting to destruction one of their own people. Israel is performing conquest on one of its own. But they still don't have enough wives for the men of Gibeah, and so they plot this plan to kidnap the women of Shiloh. And so they find a loophole loophole to their vow. They aren't going to give their daughters to Benjamin. They vowed not to do that. And the fathers of these women of Shiloh, they're not going to technically be giving their daughters to Benjamin because the women will be stolen. They're just going to allow them to be kidnapped. You know, it's a very moral solution, right, to these people who obviously care so much about honoring their vow before God. That's the holy thing to do, right? Hopefully you can tell I'm being sarcastic. Those who assemble to avenge a a raped and murdered woman end up plotting the abduction of 200 women, plus the 400 before, all in the name supposedly of purging evil from their midst and bringing about justice. It all makes sense. And... It's additionally heinous because they do all of this at the festival to God at the tabernacle, Shiloh. These vows here remind us of an earlier foolish vow, right? Remember Jephthah's foolish vow? And so too here we have another foolish vow conducted by the men in the story that results in tragedy for the women in the story. And in the same way as Jephthah's daughter was met with tragedy as she came out with dancing, you remember? So two these women at Shiloh meet their fate as they come out with dancing. And so we see in each of these scenes social chaos, social evil, what, I, what you might call civil anarchy, anarchy on the civil level, on the horizontal level towards one another. One commentator summarizes the passage this way. He says, quote, The rape and death of the Levite's concubine led to the decimation of the tribe of Benjamin and the death of tens of thousands of Israelites. These events then led to the extermination of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead and the abduction of 400 virgin daughters, which then required the ambush and abduction of 200 virgin daughters from Shiloh, sin upon sin, tragedy following tragedy. You know, uh, this weekend, we had our elders' retreat, and one of the things we did as an elder, we do a team-building thing, we went went out and we played this basketball-based game, like uh, around the world type thing where you could tip people in. But we made the rules so, so difficult that you could get eliminated in the game. We made the rules so difficult that we all ended up eliminating each other and no one won. We all lost. In fact, we were playing, we were playing such poor basketball that a car drove by at one point and it said, you guys can't hoop, you're terrible. And that's kind of the, what we have here. It's just so bad. Everyone's terrible. Everyone gets eliminated in this game. There's there's no winner. Just one person committing injustice, another person responding to an injustice with injustice, evil meeting evil, trying to correct further evil, but more evil as a result. And the explanation we get for all of this is the bookends of this passage. Chapter 19, verse 1, and 21, verse 25. The first verse and the last verse. 19, verse 1 in those days when there was no king in Israel, chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Without a king leading the people in righteousness, people just did whatever was right in their own sight. And church, this is the result when we do right in our own sight, when we try to do things our own way. Without a king, God's people do what is right in their own sight. And in this case, that results in societal evil and chaos. In other words, we are absolutely desperate. We are in desperate need of God's king. And initially, this king was met, this need for a king was met in David, right? You'll you'll hopefully have noticed throughout the book. There's this subtle theme of how uh, uh, the tribe of Judah, where, where, that's where David comes from, the tribe of, tribe of Judah is held up very positively. Not always, but in a lot of ways, positively. And you'll notice here as well, the town of Gibeah. Who's from the town of Gibeah? Saul. What tribe is, is Saul from? Benjamin. Portrayed very negatively. So just in this section here, at the beginning of the book, Judah is the one who leads the charge into conquest. But just here... The Levite is shown hospitality where? In Bethlehem of Judah. That's David's hometown. That's his pedigree. And he's shown quite the opposite of hospitality in Gibeah, Saul's hometown, the pedigree that he comes from. Benjamin, that is Saul's tribe, they get judged. And in contrast, Judah, David's tribe, is the one that takes the lead role in issuing that judgment. And so Saul, the first king of Israel, the one who was the king that they wanted in their, formed in their own image, a king that, was, that would lead them like the nations. They wanted to be like the surrounding nations again, even as they called for a king. Saul obviously proves to be disastrous for them. The true sort of king that they need is one in the pattern of David. And of course, we know that David ultimately doesn't prove sufficient himself. He has his own uh, uh, sin and his own evil, and and he can't ultimately bring about God's final form of the kingdom. Eventually, the longing that the book of Judges has for a sufficient saving king can only be met in King Jesus. That we are in desperate need of God's saving king, Jesus, to rescue us from our societal chaos, church. Jesus is the one who creates a new society for God's people in which he rules and he brings order. He rescues us from the punishment from our wrongs, the wrongdoings that we commit against each other, then giving us then the rightful, the rightful place to be a citizen in his new society, the church, the people of God. And, and as he leads us, he rescues us from civil anarchy. The societal chaos. He provides order. He creates a new community. The church made possible by a gospel of forgiveness where we extend forgiveness to one another. He he empowers us and he rules by his spirit and he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility as Ephesians 2 says. So as we think about bringing this home to our own context, our society and world is filled with societal chaos, is it not? I don't have to give you I don't have to give you examples for you to know that, but I will. We think about the, the madness, the moral insanity today that is the transgender movement. People don't even know how to think about what it means to be a man and a woman. We think about civil unrest that occurred uh, maybe what was it, like a couple years ago or a year ago. With, we had riots and we had looting, people destroying each other's property. Last year, a year and a half, we had January 6th, the insurrection stuff. A near constitutional crisis stoked by lies from some of our leaders. We, had injusti- we have injustices like sex trafficking that happened in the United States. We have disturbing racial disparities that persist in our country. We have Russia usurping the sovereignty of Ukraine and attacking their people unprovoked. We have refugees who flee to Milwaukee. We know people who flee bad situations for- to save their lives. And listen, there is a common sentiment in our culture that says, you know, I like to believe that humanity is fundamentally good. I don't know how you can believe that. That sounds positive. I'll give you that. It sounds encouraging. But it's actually utterly hopeless because it's turning a blind eye to our deep problem. My sister a few years ago was diagnosed with cancer and she had she had a mass growing in her in her neck that she noticed that's what led her to eventually get checked out now it wouldn't have done her any good to believe that her neck was fundamentally fine i believe my neck is fundamentally fine oh it's like it's clearly not okay you can see it just look at the world around us we have maybe not these exact details but we have instances like this in our world today we need a savior we are broken as humanity but more importantly, this passage is a picture for God's people. It's not just a picture that I think has relations to society at large, but for, specifically for God's people. There were, there were no pagans involved that could be blamed for any of this. This was Israel's own doing. And so too today, I, I as we think about the state of the church in the world, the American church, it grieves me. It pains me. Like this, this passage has been good for me because I feel the pain. I feel pain over the state of American evangelicalism. That we seem to have a leadership crisis. We have these celebrity pastors who often fall and get themselves into scandals. We have sex abuse that occurs. We know with the Southern Baptist Convention that recently came out. Uh, that report was released. We, we 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 tend to be as evangelicals some of the most likely people to fall for conspiracy theories. We can we can be some of the most callous people to vulnerable populations in our society. Our marriages oftentimes aren't better than other people. We have a lot of problems. It, it's hard to watch. You know, in the 1980s, it was at least plausible for Christians to describe themselves as the the moral majority. You guys, some of you were alive that time. I wasn't, but there was that movement, the moral majority. They could say that because there was a sense that Christians were moral. That almost feels laughable now. I don't find any joy saying that, but it does. It almost feels laughable now. That in many ways, we've lost the claim that we previously had of possessing any sort of superior moral standing in our society as evangelicals unfortunately we aren't known for our morals we're, more, we're known for a lot of things but mostly regrettable things and so sometimes I wonder when you think about book of revelation where Jesus writes seven messages to seven different churches I've, I've wondered what would it look like if Jesus was to write a message to the church the American church today I imagine he'd have some pretty scorching things to say What would it look like if a Judges 19 through 21 was written of the church today? And so I think as we respond, one of the most important things we can do as we respond to a message of this passage is simply to lament and to grieve. This passage means to confront us with the dire state of God's people. Just lament, just grieve it. And to recognize that this this is meant to be a portrait of us. Um, this is our condition when we do things right in our own eyes. That that, that most of the time, uh, we were some of us were uh, some of the guys in the church were gathered together the other day, um, and we were just talking about most of the time that we can't even see our own sin, and when we can see our own sin, we struggle to do anything about it. That we can't fix ourselves. So one of the ways, I think, is probably just the most fundamental way we need to respond to a passage like this is just cry out to God to help us. Just get on our knees and beg for him to actually to aid us, to bring about the revival we need, to, to, to actually just humble ourselves before God and recognize we need him to act. This passage then also shows that we need Christ. We need to return to him. We need to be led by his rule. This is what happens when we go our own way. This, this, this passage is teaching us. You might say, in short, the, the point of this passage is to teach us how terrible God's people are. We're, we're bad. God's people are horrendous. And we still are. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a really good, seriously. It is so good that, that, that our hope does not depend on us. This, this passage could feel like a very negative passage. Of course, in a sense, it is. But I actually find this passage incredibly, incredibly encouraging because the whole point is to show that it doesn't depend on us. And man, if it depended on us, it would be bad news. The whole point, though, is that we need a king, and God has provided that king. If my hope depended on the condition of the church today, I would have lost my faith a long time ago. But it doesn't. You see, we are the problem, and if we're the problem, we can't be the solution. But there is hope outside of ourselves, and this passage is actually quite encouraging then because it presents in graphic, explicit detail that the hope is not in us. We need a king, and Jesus is that king. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, I just what I want you to, to consider as we take the Lord's Supper today, the Lord's Supper, Supper as a pictured promise of our, of our, as we've talk, talk, we even saying in the song, and can it be our interest in the gospel? That as I take the bread and I drink the wine, the juice, uh, that, that, that represents the body of Christ given for me, the blood of Christ poured for me. It, it's saying that I, as one who believes that message, I have an interest in his death. I, I benefit from his death. And what I want you to focus on this morning as we partake is simply that this is our only hope. This passage is meant to bring us to the end of ourselves to realize that the hope cannot be found in us. If you're not a believer here today, we encourage you then to put your faith in Christ. Come to the end of yourself. Join us as those who seek to worship Christ by repenting of our sin and placing our our hope and our faith solely and entirely on Christ and what he has done.